This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. My name is Germ, this is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. Joe Allen, nice to, nice to have you here in the trenches with me. Germ, wonderful to be here. We were just talking about the United States. Um, you're in Montana and you're saying that that's, uh, it's better than Texas. Yeah, you're already getting me in trouble with uh, many millions of people. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's true though. Uh, like I say, uh, Texas is like communism in that it's uh, you know supposedly great on paper. But in reality, it's more of a, uh, a dry, bland sort of corporate hellhole. Now, there are great places in Texas, I should emphasize. And mm. I've never met a Texan I didn't like. So I feel sorry for all of them for having to live there. Um, but Montana, I mean, on the other hand. Yeah, uh, I mean, You know, also wonderful people. But um, a lot of very uh, hateful and, uh, you know, potentially uh, violent people, which, um, you know, it kind of feels like Tennessee. So it feels like home. Montana is a red state, huh? Oh yeah, yep. Montana, Tennessee, Texas—they all—they all share a kind of common spirit, I would say. Uh, Montana and Tennessee have mountains. Texas is sadly shy of them, but uh, yeah, Montana's mountains are gorgeous, and hence the name of the state. But um, you, you, one of the most amazing things about Montana is its geology, uh, especially up near Glacier, and you can actually see. The, the geological layers descending, um, the, the, the very lowest layer over in East Glacier uh, dates back to about a billion and a half years old. So it's really fascinating to, to look at these massive cliffs and walls that have been cut out. You can almost imagine uh, the, the life cycles of the creatures as it builds up uh, to the present day. You see those beautiful red and yellow and green lines. Is it a very picturesque, country-esque type of type of region absolutely that's the reason that everyone's coming here and buying everything up that they can and also you know in, in, re, in regard to covid restrictions i, I oftentimes mm. joke that it's like 2019 and always always is uh, missoula is one glaring exception but most of the state it's like 2019 so you see somebody coming in with a mask it's like they're coming through a time portal from 2022 and you know you ask them, well what's going on out there what's what's happening in the future and they're like it sucks have to wear a mask, but I guess all that seems to be going away. So I'm sure there'll be one, something new. One of the um, agendas is to move people out of the countryside and into into the cities. I was trying to find a segue into into our transhumanism <laughs> talking point. <laughs> um, so so maybe that's a good start. Sure. Well, you know, um, this is not verified, but uh, I, I am told by a very intelligent and, um, you know, reliable to my knowledge source that uh, there is a lot of pressure on, um, you know, kind of poorer people in rural areas intentionally to kind of move people into the cities. But um, this gentleman told me that uh, what he anticipates, and this is, I, I, I hesitate to open with this because I, I can't verify or have not verified but what he anticipates are, um, you know, fears of uh, zoonotic diseases to uh, have a, be a sort of justification to bring more and more regulation, you know, federal in institutional uh, regulation to the Wild West and to the wilder regions of uh, the United States. Now, whether that's true or not, one thing is for sure is that uh, just simply by choice, right, like uh, by enticement and by choice, 
for the last uh, 70 or more years, people have actually been uh, moving, you know, out into the cities from the country, mainly for economic, I'm sorry, mainly for economic reasons. And also uh, people, young people who want to live their lives, right? Like uh, young people in general, unless they really like the great outdoors, don't uh, see any, you know, kind of modern future for themselves. So they've been drawn to the cities. Um, now, as far as a, a deeper underlying plot, I think that different interests want different things. But the more that you see agriculture uh, automated and certainly the more that you see wealthy people uh, who want to, to live or at least have second homes in the country, the more that process of urbanization will continue. And I mean, that process, I, I think that a, lar a large part behind this you know, revolt against the modern world, as it's oftentimes described, is driven by a certain nostalgia for a more agrarian existence, which was basically vaporized over the course of the last half century. And uh, there are a lot of encouraging signs that people on a sort of uh, trendy or boutique level are returning to farming, returning to the sorts of traditional crafts. Uh, but, you know, the COVID pandemic, on the one hand, enticed a lot of people to go out into the country or maybe return to those sorts of ways. But I think overall, especially with the sort of desperate economic situation that's coming down and every other sort of uh, cultural movements being pushed on us um, from basically every direction, I, I, I find it to be very doubtful that uh, anything like the old agrarian existence will return in any uh, meaningful way in our lifetimes. Mm. So uh, on the topic of transhumanism, though, all of that's um, related to the extent that it's related, uh, all of it relates to technology. Uh, but as far as um, the, the notion of augmenting human beings with technology and fundamentally changing their natures, uh, I think that, you know, um, Lewis Mumford makes a very good argument that the, uh, the machine, right, that what he calls the mega machine, um, that idea or that, that, that mode of, of, of socialization, you know, really goes back to the earliest days of agriculture and what we're seeing now is a sort of revolution in that mega machine. So there's no longer the mega machine is no longer run by way of, uh, you know, social planning and orders and, you know, various urban and religious centers of, say, Egypt on down to the Middle Ages. But um, the new mega machine will be, you know, more in line with what we now think in the modern term as mechanical. Um, and the, the human capital that's required to run that mega machine is becoming... Um, uh, smaller and smaller so that uh, in the case say of agriculture more and more it's been shown that uh, you know any major big ag corporation will save money by automating as much if not everything that they can and um, I, I think that uh, that that transition that that, re that sort of social revolution is that we're undergoing now is on par really with that transition to agriculture uh, say 10 thousand years ago, give or take, you know, 2,000 years. And uh, I, I, I think that it's, it's good and right, actually, that people uh, mourn what's lost. I think that mm. we are losing something very, very precious, uh, not just in the social structures, but in the sort of personalities that are formed in a more natural environment. Even if they were part of a kind of larger social mega machine before, uh, what seems to be coming around the corner, and I think that anybody who predicts it with any degree of specificity is is kind of doomed to be mistaken, 
But in broad terms, what's coming around the corner is is certainly a revolution in which um, the the sorts of, of values and the sorts of worldviews that have always been held precious by human beings uh, are on course to be digitized, monetized, uh, and basically engulfed in this you know very lifeless mm. corporate culture. What is transhumanism? You know, in short, transhumanism is the desire to overcome human limitations through technology. And <clears throat> I oftentimes describe transhumanism in terms of a religion uh, for two reasons. One, uh, it, it irritates uh, the proponents. But two, it also, I think, really uh, maps in many ways to, uh, you know, an insurgent religion or, uh, you know, like the early stages of a heterodox religion. You know, it has a, a you know very well artic well articulated belief systems as to where human beings come from, uh, where human beings are going, and maybe most uh, importantly, transhumanism uh, gives people uh, a, an orientation or a direction, uh, both individually and as a broader society. It gives human beings that sort of transcendent dream towards which they can constantly strive throughout their lives. Uh, religions have, have done that uh, as long as anyone can tell. I mean, you look at the, the most uh, rudimentary prehistoric artifacts, and one can at least infer some degree of religious sentiment there. So it's a very old, you could say, uh, tendency in human beings or an instinct or maybe even something necessary to our, the fabric of our mm. being. And what transhumanism does by positioning technology uh, between human beings and that which is to be strived for, it, uh, it itself becomes uh, a religion. Now, transhumanism at its, uh, in its most openly articulated form uh, is simply a group of philosophers and some of them actual tech developers, but, um, you know, or even biologists who are theorizing what the future will look like, right? They're basically techno-optimists on steroids, uh, there are very few transhumanists that I've read in any depth that strike me as being anything else uh, but brilliant. You know, all of them are insane, uh, completely batshit insane as far as I'm concerned, but not because of some sort of cross-wiring in their brains uh, or even really, uh, you know, <laughs> they all seem to have tics, but they're not, um, they're not outwardly neurotic. I, I think the insanity of it, though, is the utter hubris that human beings will achieve anything like that degree of perfection. Uh, uh, some examples would be, you know, eugenics. Uh, transhumanism, of course, as a term was coined by Julian Huxley, who himself was one of the, you know, core eugenicists of his time. Brave uh, new world. He coined the term, I believe, in 1957. Mm. But, um, you know, his, his grandfather, um, uh, 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 Thomas Huxley, Thomas Huxley, uh, his brother, uh, Aldous Huxley, you could see in there, um, th th in that sort of uh, uh, trinity, the really the, the seeds of much of what we would not only call transhumanism, but also kind of modern spirituality and also modern evolutionary theory. So this idea of eugenics, I think, uh, lies at the core of transhumanism. Not overtly oftentimes, but it's, it's this idea that one's genetic code, one's biological state, uh, in, in many ways determines one's output, one's capabilities, 
And the goal of transhumanism is to take that raw material and to, to sculpt or cultivate it into something better, to greater intelligence, greater awareness, greater strength, greater agility. Um, so, you know, the advent of CRISPR and various other gene therapies uh, has <clears throat> really given an, an open doorway to a lot of the ambitions and ideas of the earliest transhumanists. And, uh, and I think that even though that possibility rep represents really a, a very long-term goal, right? Like if you, if you start tomorrow um, altering the genetic code of every infant, let's just take it to the extreme, of every infant, uh, you're really not going to see the fruition of that until, you know, 10, 20, 30 years um, uh, as they begin to mature and actually, you know, take an active part in the world. You're really not going to see the results of that experiment. Now, what will actually happen will be far, far slower, I think. So eugenics or gene editing, I think is... Part of the transhumanist quest, right? Um, so, you know, one of, one of the uh, kind of classic examples of neuroenhancement would just be uh, students you know, using Ritalin or Adderall, um, mm. or uh, there's there's another less known but apparently very popular uh, cognitive enhancer, uh, Modafinil, and uh, it's used by soldiers, it's used by students, um, it's advocated for by a number of transhumanists. So uh, this idea that you can use chemicals uh, to simply alter the neurological state to enhance your performance um, is also kind of core and also very immediate, right? This is something that's yeah. happening now. Can I, sorry, can I interject just for a second? Yes. Um, it, does that include things like antidepressants and what about recreational drugs like acid? So uh, LSD or hallucinogens in general, mm. uh, very potent force in the transhumanist thinking. Uh, something that's really important to remember, too, of course, is that there are so many different transhumanist thinkers and different schools of thought that they gravitate around, very heterodox. There's no one sort of transhumanist dogma. There's a general tendency towards a certain uh, future, I think. Uh, but even those distant and general futures are very different. So hallucinogens, very, very important. Uh, you know, figures, classic figures like Timothy Leary or Terrence McKenna, uh, both of them really foreshadowed. They adopted a lot of what would become transhumanist views. And I think a lot of their ideas foreshadowed uh, some of the larger paradigms that transhumanists uh, have concocted. So uh, hallucinogens are absolutely at least part of that whole realm. And I, I think that even though I've never really seen antidepressants mentioned other than as a sort of rhetorical device for, well, if you would be willing to take Prozac, why wouldn't you be willing to take a brain chip, right? All you're doing is altering your neurons. Um, but I think that it, all of it really fits into it. That's something really important to remember about transhumanism. I think that even though the idea of a cyborg who has various you know, chemicals injected into him, flowing through his body with you know, mechanical arms and brain chips in his head connect, connected to advanced artificial intelligence, all of that uh, sits at the, 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 the distance in that worldview, right? All of these sorts of ideas are not held as science fiction, but as possibilities and possibilities towards which we should st strive. But, um, you know, uh, the, the, the more immediate really is um, everything from the smartphone that you carry around and look at constantly uh, to, uh, you know, even your cup of coffee in the morning, right? Especially if it's GMO coffee. 
I, I think that transhumanists make a good point that all technology and all human enhancement, all cultural modes sit on a spectrum. Uh, and you take the natural raw human being and you use culture, uh, you use different sorts of nutrition even, you use different chemicals to alter that person as they go through their lives, different tools obviously change their lifestyle, change their behavior, change their way of thinking. So, you know, the transhumanist justification for the idea that you would use a brain-computer interface to directly interact with an artificial intelligence or to use, uh, you know, deep, you know, deep um, uh, 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 neurological, deep brain stimulation. Uh, yeah, maybe I needed a chip on that. Uh, to use a, a deep brain stimulation in order to enhance memory or cognition or to suppress mood. Um, they see it on a spectrum, and so without that hard line, there's really no reason to stop. I think that the people who are opposed to transhumanism are by and large initially opposed instinctively because I think most normal people don't want uh, any sort of extreme augmentation and any of the promises of transhumanism from, uh, say, you know, the, the possibility of digital immortality uh, or merging your, your, your brain slowly but surely uh, with artificial neurons, all of that seems disgusting and disturbing. Um, and I think that uh, most people wouldn't even be able to articulate necessarily why. Uh, they might, mm -hmm. you know, well, what if it's used to control me? Well, it won't control you. Now what's your answer? You know, what if it, uh, you know, takes away who I am? Well, you change who you are day in, day out. Now what's your answer? So um, I, I think that the, the resistance to this sort of, to, whether it's something extreme like transhumanism, or even something as mundane as, uh, you know, having full e-learning uh, environments for children. Uh, I, I think that a lot of the resistance to it lays in uh, a, a sense of the sacred so that naturalists would say that there's a certain limit to which the natural human body that has evolved over the course of, uh, you know, a quarter million to, you could, you could say, back to the earliest primates, you know, 50 million years ago. And uh, th to alter that, that, that long process of evolution instantaneously is both reckless, dangerous. You could irrevocably uh, destroy all the gains of evolution up to this point. So even naturalists have this sort of sense of the sacred. Um, but the most ferocious resistance to these sorts of ideas, uh, in my experience anyway, come from religious people. And I think that that is uh, maybe the most... Uh, accurate way to look at this is that, you know, at least from my perspective, that we're given a, 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 we're given an identity and we were born into this world under the auspices of powers that are far beyond the material. And the direct intervention into that uh, with no sense of uh, a limit, with no sense that what you're tinkering with is sacred and given to you by something higher, uh, that sense, I think, also puts people off to the idea so uh, back quickly, uh, back to transhumanism and back to its more extreme forms, I think that um, you know, among the thinkers that gets the most uh, attention is Ray Kurzweil. And uh, he basically categorizes what he calls the singularity uh, as uh, under three different uh, headings. You've got uh, genomics, you know, gene editing, uh, you have nanorobotics uh, or nanotechnology in general, and you have broader sort of macro robotics. And he sees, uh, you know, uh, genetics, uh, nanotechnology and robotics as moving rapidly towards what he calls a singularity in which each of them will, you know, benefit from the gains of the other. 
in Converge, he is, you know, he's a futurist. He has all these specific dates. So by 2030, he sees the full emulation of a human brain and artificial intelligence in silico. Um, and by 2045, he sees a singularity in which all of these different technologies, uh, it, it, artificial intelligence included in that, converge at a point that human beings are irrevocably changed and mm. that the collective momentum, basically, of all of these different technological innovations and the sorts of transformations that they're creating in the genome, uh, in the phenotypical body, and then in the outward world through robotics, uh, that those transformations will be so complete that it, human beings won't really be homo sapiens as we've known homo sapiens before, and the momentum will be so out of our control that you will just have to hope that we've basically programmed the artificial intelligence with enough benevolence, uh, that we've made the right decisions with our genetic alterations, and so on and so forth, so that you have uh, something benevolent, right, that you've created. Now, many people have said, well, aren't you basically talking about creating God? And Ray Kurzweil has basically said yes. And uh, everyone from uh, Ben Goetzel, who's a lesser-known transhumanist but equally as articulate and intelligent, uh, or Hans Moravec, who is one of the, the really kind of core thinkers behind all of this, uh, they all have very different views, but they all kind of see the same sort of process happening in which human beings are completely altered by the technologies we create, and we become uh, symbiotic with them, but more and more, like in any of their descriptions, they see the, the, the weight of the, the, the center of gravity of these power structures lying not in the human being and not in who we are as biological beings, and certainly there's very little, if any, acknowledgement of human beings as spiritual beings. What they see is the center of gravity on technology so that computer systems, robots, in uh, the various sort of nano swarms that, that you know Ray Kurzweil envisions will ultimately be the the controlling factor, the the what determines our fate. And human beings now are making the decisions that will determine the shapes of those technologies. But once those, once those technologies have matured, we will basically be like a caterpillar that goes into a cocoon, and the cocoon falls away, and this technological butterfly emerges with the human imprint but no longer anything like human. And that's what, you know, the post-humanism as a term means, right? Like, whatever that entity is, is post-human. It's no longer a human being, but it's not just the dominant sort of life form on our planet. Uh, you know, the most ambitious of these transhumanists, including Kurzweil, including Goetzel, including Moravec, and many others, um, they, they envision this, this, this butterfly basically going out and seeding the cosmos with Earth life, which is basically this sort of post-human cyborg-like creature. But, I mean, if if it's so slow and gradual and almost evolutionary-like in its, in its uh, progress, nobody will notice um, any changes until way down the line. Uh, when, at what point? Uh, yeah, yes uh, and yeah. no. Uh, if you look at... Just the development of the smartphone and its deployment and the rapid transformation of society, mm. all of that being concurrent with uh, you know, the popularity of search engines and also the popularity of social media. Mm. I think that it, it's arguable, and Elon Musk makes this argument, right? We're already cyborgs because of the smartphones in our hands. 
Uh, I think that um, it's already arguable that from 2007 until 2022, 15 years, you've seen a rapid and irreversible change in human culture. So uh, one of the, the, the elements of the singularity, whether you peg it at 2045, whether you peg it at you know 2100 or wherever this supposed singularity is, or even if you don't consider it to be a, a technological singularity beyond which there can be no prediction and behind which there can be you know, really no recognition, um, I, I, I think that the, the exponential course of technological development is this, this hope that they all have uh, that will allow them to see something like their vision realized in not only this lifetime, but so that, you know, one year you have, you know, Sophia the talking robot. A few years later, you have a very articulate Sophia the talking robot. And maybe a decade or so hence, you have a Sophia the talking robot who is self-improving to the point that, that she has been able to, in some sense, you know, sculpt herself so that she is either convincingly human or maybe convincingly superhuman. And I, I think that they're, they are not completely delusional. I, I, in fact, I think that probably the thing that bothers me the most about the transhumanist vision is that um, they see this supposedly inevitable process as desirable. Um, as far as its plausibility, Definitely a lot of these guys are spinning yarns. They're doing it with, you know, deep mathematical basis and, you know, a deep knowledge of computer programming, of robotics, of, uh, you know, uh, human biology. Uh, but they're still dreaming. They're just putting dreams out there. And I think the differences between all of their different visions kind of gives you an indication mm. of how little the future is likely to look like any one of them. Right. Unless only one of them happened to get it right. But, you know, piecemeal, as you as you put it together you do see how these ideas have spread out to the broader culture through science fiction. And e even that, like the, the plausibility of science fiction scenarios has changed rapidly from, say, the mid-90s till now. You know, The Matrix was pretty creepy in the late 90s, uh, but I think the, the, its relevance as a metaphor increases by the day, and the reason is, is because the reality we encounter increases by the day. A another example beyond the smartphone, I think the next thing that people can expect to see insofar as the transhumanist vision being realized in our day-to-day -day lives is the incorporation of virtual and augmented reality into educational settings, uh, into business settings, and, you know, maybe uh, probably the most prevalent will ultimately be in entertainment settings. Augmented reality, actual viable augmented reality is quite a distance away probably, maybe, you know, five years before you see anything really decent on the market. But virtual reality has already come to the point that one can spend a lot of time in virtual reality if it doesn't make you sick. The metaverse. And, um, and, and people do find a lot of fulfillment there. And I think it's just a blank canvas. It's a matter mm. of them pouring more and more money into it, which it is, you know, the metaverse as an idea has gotten tons of investment. And then as that money comes in, you know, more talent. And as you have more talent, that, bl that blank canvas that empty space that is just you know untapped potential in this virtual mm. digital realm it will fill up and fill up and fill up and fill up to the point that much like the average sort of um, schlubby gamer who has no life outside of video games uh, appears to us now it, you know that will that will just become more and more extreme and then even among healthy individuals people who um, you know do have healthy lives outside of video games or whatever their, their sort of digital media is, of which I'm sure there'll be plenty, 
their consciousness, their 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 uh, awareness of the world will be slowly but surely irrevocably altered by the normalization of virtual reality and virtual environments. Uh, I don't think you have to look again any farther than the invention of the television uh, or the invention of the smartphone and its deployment across the world to see how uh, deep the impact of digital technology is on the individual psychology and on the wider society. And, and it, does, it really doesn't take much inference to see how a completely immersive digital virtual environment that basically replaces the world inside your head, the, the model inside your head with a completely simulated virtual model. And uh, it's, it, yes. it's just... It's really it's 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 just the natural evolution from the silver screen to the boob tube uh, to mm. the smartphone to virtual reality. And so uh, as that occurs, I think that in the same way that I think people in general are better informed through digital media, they also become very detached from the outside world and in many ways become deluded, especially by the false claims or fantasies that one finds in digital media. And I think that process will increase as well. So, and it's already happening. What is the antithesis to transhumanism? Luddism. Of course, just pure Luddite reactionary uh, extremism. And I, I don't think that any human being on the planet is quite prepared to uh, enter the jungle naked and just go for it. Uh, which, you know, you could say is the extreme end of, you know, the sort of naturalism or, or Luddism. But um, it, whatever happens will be on a spectrum. Whatever response uh, pushes back these sorts of technologically centered cultural modes, uh, they'll be on a spectrum. And I, so I don't think any given model really uh, describes what resistance to this looks like. But I do think that there are a number of examples. I mean, even... Um, you know, I think an example that's readily observed, you've got, <clears throat> excuse me, you've got, um, say, a Christian family that, um, you know, their parents didn't allow them to watch television. Uh, they won't allow their kids to have smartphones. You know, the extent to which any of these technologies are incorporated are only going to be incorporated at the, the absolute minimum. And they'll be seen as these sorts of profane entities in that realm, right? These exist already all over America, all over, I'm sure, Europe. Um, and uh, it's, it's a good question and one I would love to investigate now that the borders are open. I, I, I'm more and more interested in how um, India and various Asian nations, um, are uh, their religious cultures are reacting to this. I read about it, but at any rate, I think that um, that's one good example, even if one isn't a Christian, one can at least appreciate the way in which the, the Christian sense of the sacred puts a barrier against technological intrusion and also opens up uh, and, and encourages the sort of uh, ancient organic modes of interaction. Uh, even a church, right? You could say, oh, well, those statues are technology. Uh, yes, uh, but I think it's a far cry from augmented reality in which the statues talk to you and Jesus begins crying blood um, and certainly a, a long way off from the, the religious experiences that are oftentimes described by people in certain virtual environments. And that's, that description has always unnerved me. Uh, but as those descriptions become more common, it becomes more obvious that virtual environments, virtual reality, um, is in many ways triggering all the same buttons that visiting a cathedral would, but uh, it's a very different machine doing it.
And so, and then there's also, of course, the hippie naturalists. Um, there are the, you know, anarchists. There, there are also just, I, I think, um, you know, average people who will just do everything they can to push back on, uh, you know, a, a fully digital existence. So but where's the sweet spot? So, really, yes. Well, oh, sorry, I interrupted you, but where's the sweet spot? For me? Or mm. for, because that's really all I can answer. Uh, you mm. know, I, I don't think that there again, I don't think there is a one size fits all. But for me, I, I think uh, cars used at an absolute minimum, um, you know, trains, um, uh, you know, bicycles. I think that um, the bicycle is should be the top of that pyramid, you know, the train next and the car next an airplane only an emergency. Uh, insofar as digital technology, um, I, you know, a smartphone is very handy in a pinch. But I really don't see much of any value in it um, outside of, you know, certain emergency situations where you can't find the information anywhere else. Uh, or, it, you know, if you're lost, uh, you need to get a hold of somebody uh, immediately. I think that, uh, you know, I, before Steve Bannon hired me uh, at the war room, um, I, I didn't have a smartphone at all. Uh, and, and I used my flip phone like kind of a house phone. And uh, I, I tried to maintain that distance as much as possible. It was quite wonderful. Now, as I'm reporting on this constantly, and I'm on the show all the time, it, it, it does require a lot more of that. But the, the sooner I can get away from that sort of attachment to a digital device, the better. So anyway, I, I think that um, the more that people do that, and there is a, a, a tendency, a current of people who have the luxury to do that, to do that, the better it will be. Um, I think in education, especially, this is important. I think that the less you rely on computers, uh, even in writing, right? Like uh, certainly turning in a finalized paper, uh, it wouldn't make any sense for them all to be handwritten. But I do think that the maintenance of long form handwriting and especially maintaining that teacher to student relationship around books that are read in silence, read in quiet, without any sort of distractions, and the contemplation of that knowledge and, and the working out of, you know, how that knowledge is relevant and what is and isn't correct with a human mentor. I think that's really, really important to preserve. And I don't think that people realize how much in wealthy nations and even in poorer nations where wealthy nations are, have their charitable, global charities, how much that relationship, that, uh, that sort of educational model is going is being presently destroyed and disintegrated, but could easily be vaporized in the course of a generation. So that there'd be very, very few people who had maintained that mode of education. Some people say, oh, well, you know, what difference does it make if you learn about it on a computer or if you learn about it with a virtual reality helmet on or whatever? Um, in, in some ways, you know, it's like, well, if you don't already see the difference, then it would be it would probably be a waste of my time to explain it. But I think that there are very... Uh, clear practical reasons for it that begin with the obvious fact that digital technology shatters attention because of the, the constant draw of other novel sources of information. If you can train students to not ever go past that, and, and of course there are many, uh, you know, there are a lot of algorithms actually that are trained to observe a student's attention and try to find ways to keep them on task and keep them from moving away from that. But I think it's... Um, it's a sort of synthetic discipline uh, that, that hardly replaces the person-to-person -person transmission of virtue that the, the classical educational model has. So what's the sweet spot? I, I think the sweet spot is really uh, the, the deepest cultivation of strength and virtue in any human being that you can, that you, you can accomplish you know, over the, within your family, uh, within an educational environment, and then at the broader culture, 
you know, just generation to generation passed down through the, the central symbols of the culture. All that's under threat now. So what form it will take in the future, I don't know, but it will be very impromptu because there's there's no corner of our society that has not fallen victim to techno fetishism. I just don't see it uh, other than those that have made a conscious choice to resist it. But it sounds like it sounds like you're just not liking progress, technological progress. Sure. I, I, th I think, uh, look, what moral position isn't in some way aesthetic, right? Uh, what, what, you know, even a broader moral disposition in any society, what position is not in some sense aesthetic? Uh, you know, there is a bloodthirstiness in human beings that's quite natural and it varies from person to person and from society to society. Mm. There is a gentleness that's natural to human beings, varies from individual to individual, society to society. And I think all of those are sort of, you know, innate, uh, aesthetic dispositions. And um, you can moralize it and rationalize it, but ultimately I think it all boils down to that, a kind of inner conscience, a sense of right and wrong. So when you see the extremity of someone like Ben Goetzel, who in his articulation of uh, what it will mean to hand over humanity to a sort of digital life form, what he's talking about in, in, in totality is either the creation of some sort of superhuman entity that will keep us as pets and will continue to learn from us and feed us sort of like he, he's, he said it um, quite humorously, like squirrels in the park, mm. or we'll just have no use for us and we'll go on. And that, that, that our role is the sort of Buddhist role to, to give ourselves over to, to that flux, to that impermanence, and allow technology to go on without us, you know, to, to completely wipe us off the face of the planet and, and, and uh, you know, uh, replace us. He doesn't see it as a negative. He sees that as inevitable. I see that as a profoundly anti-human philosophy that goes against every fiber of my being. And even if human beings are not intended to go, even if it's not our destiny to go more than another 10 years before blowing ourselves off the face of the planet or less, I think that it's just incumbent on anyone whose aesthetic sensibility just recoils from the notion of creating robots to replace themselves and their progeny. If, if anyone who, recoil, who recoils from that simply has to do what they can to maintain the reasons to continue being human and to pass on truly human traditions going forward. And it, 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 it should seem ridiculous. And, and I think that you know, outside of people who are exposed to the extremity of these sort of uh, techno-fetishistic uh, ideas, they, they wouldn't, you know, people will just go on, they'll do what they, mm. they will, they'll build their machines, it'll be fine. Um, I, I think there is a certain truth to that, but no, I think that there are at least three rational reasons beyond personal sentiment uh, to reject that. One, you can't run a society in any sort of healthy fashion with anti-human philosophies sitting at the top. Right now, those anti-human philosophies are quite fringe, but they're rapidly making their way into the mainstream. Uh, the second is that we also know, and we know this from you know, even people who are demonized, like Yuval Noah Harari, uh, e even uh, Elon Musk, with whom I have many disagreements, uh, all acknowledge that technology will ultimately be deployed by elites and most likely be used to control the populace meaning that the re that relationship to technology is going to be very different for a working class or middle class or poor person 
than it is a wealthy person. And I can see very little reason other than a sort of suicidal submission uh, to to indulge in or submit to these technologies. I think that anyone who wants to maintain autonomy, who is not already sitting at the top of the society, should be very wary of those technologies as means of establishing control. Um, and then, you know, the third, and I, I said rational, and maybe it's not rational, maybe this is also irrational, uh, but the third is, I think, um, every spiritual tradition, with all of their differences, points back to some transcendent force that is beyond this material realm. And every religious tradition at its core, world religious tradition at its core, counsels against uh, becoming infatuated or enamored with uh, material gain in this material world and this material existence, which is temporary. And I think that beyond, you know, transhumanism is a, is a, is a very extreme form of scientism. And I think that scientism and atheism as philosophies uh, are ultimately empty in that regard. And they leave very little other than a sort of maybe an existential indulgence in one's imaginative state, which is nothing but, you know, neurological vapor to blow away in the wind. Um, atheism is ultimately an empty way of viewing the world in which, you know, really material gain is one of the few things that you can actually aspire to in. Mm. Um, intellectual gain ultimately then becomes material gain. And ultimately, that is basically no atheistic philosophy can find any real long-term justification for any moral code or any course of action because it all becomes nothing. It's nullified at the end of the road. The, the, you know, the, the wilder transhumanist ideas foresee ways of overcoming that, that sort of materialist entropy. So it's, I think it's, that, it's removing God. Well, it's absolutely. It's, it's removing God and it's replacing God with a technological entity or a series of technological entities or human beings who are enhanced through technology. And I think that whether it's God, though, I mean, look, Buddhists have a very different view on this that have uh, little or nothing to do with God sitting at the center of the universe. But uh, all of those traditions still point back to a source and point forward to a destination that transcends this materialist human wavelength, right? Now, transhumanists and religion share that in common as well, in that ultimately humans are a sort of way station towards which, this human mm. form is a way station towards which uh, we are moving to something greater. The difference is that transhumanism is a materialist inversion of those more sublime visions of what the ultimate human quest is and should be. And I think that, uh, you know, even if a society is, is completely gripped with materialism, if at its, its core there is a spiritual aspiration, there's some hope of moving through that uh, to that which is being pointed to, that which is greater. But in, in a uh, purely materialistic, in a transhumanist, like if you imagine transhumanists achieve even close to what they want with artificial intelligence systems that completely surpass human intelligence, uh, with different control structures from those artificial intelligence systems down into society so that society is monitored and all of its decisions are made by either that AI or that AI in companionship with the humans over them. And let's just say that you are able to uh, allow people to, to go off and live their best lives in virtual worlds, quite literally, uh, it, 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 they're more intense and, and more beautiful than this world 
what you're doing basically is you're replacing all of those aspirations of the sublime from the religious worlds in which icons point to something greater. And you're taking those icons, you're animating them, and you're making those sort of, you know, those, those golden idols, so to speak. Uh, you're, you're turning them into incarnate gods here on Earth. Now, that may, again, sound crazy, but all I'm really talking about are people who idolize Elon Musk on their smartphones. You know, uh, th th even that degree of delusion is kind of edging towards that materialist religion. It's not mm -hmm. that much different uh, than people, you know, paying homage to Caesar or paying homage to Ramses, right? Like, th this tendency has always been there. But you know, coming out of the Axial Age religions, there is a corrective to the human tendency towards that idolatry. And I think that that will become, you know, you talk about the resistance. I think that, that sort of Axial Age corrective, that, 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 that sense of transcendence outside the material that really is the only way to resist it because it is in many ways um, technological progress is inevitable outside of disaster. And so we will have to continue responding to it going forward. To me, I think that's probably the richest resource we have uh, is, is religious traditionalism. Uh, and, and, and really in, in its more esoteric forms where those traditions begin to meet, uh, I, I think one finds some sort of escape from the inevitable course of the world. But, um, but to, to the question of, or to, to the, the comment rather, that it sounds like um, this is just me against progress, I'm certainly not alone. And uh, I, in fact, I would say that probably most humans on earth when confronted with the notion of technology mediating every element of their lives, if they've grown up without it, more than likely they, they sense something sinister in it. Yeah. And if it's just a sense, if it's just an, an instinct, if it's just aesthetics, I don't really see any justification beyond that that's necessary. How dangerous then <clears throat> are some of these big players like Klaus Schwab and Elon Musk and Bill Gates and, and even the, the medical fraternity like um, uh, Fauci, etc.? Well, how dangerous they are is yet to be seen. How powerful they are, I think, has become quite obvious. And their power, in the case of, say, the World Economic Forum, is not necessarily direct, whereas mm. the power of someone like Fauci is quite direct. And I think that the power of someone, um, you know, someone like Sundar Pinchai, right? Like the, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, any of the major tech corporations that ultimately determine the majority of our, or, or mediate, the majority of our social intera interactions are extraordinarily dangerous in that they have already such wide control over the populace, which we saw with the unfolding of the pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone would have anticipated seeing half of America go completely insane. And, and really, the other half, I mean, I can't tell you how often people come to me with these images of nanobots in the vaccine, or, you know, hydrogel structures that are supposedly in the vaccine moving through people's veins. Or this notion that, you know, chemtrails are, are actually nanobots that are going to be controlled by 5G satellites. Like, so on the one side, you have kind of normie extremism, where it's like, if you don't wear a mask, you're going to die, and you have to put sanitizer on everything. People lost their minds. It was entirely driven by digital technology and the, and the sort of sway that that propaganda can have over individuals and driven by the medical establishment and control of that digital technology. 
on the fringes of that, though, what it also created is this, you know, kind of bizarre subculture of doubters and deniers uh, who either don't believe that COVID exists. Uh, I, in fact, I, you know, again, these nanobots in the vaccine, it's not just a, a leaky, dangerous, you know, experimental vaccine. No, it's actually nanobots that are being put in your body to track you and perhaps take control of you and turn you into some sort of zombie by way of 5G. Uh, I, I, I see madness on both sides of that. The, 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 you know, one side is enfranchised by the system. The other side is just a small fringe just to say that that madness descended and seeing that madness descend, see the, seeing the damage it did to the younger generation, seeing the damage it did to the social structure in general, what you have is like clear evidence that power of this magnitude put in the hands of, of even just self-interested forces, not necessarily even malevolent, uh, is extraordinarily dangerous. I mean, uh, with Klaus Schwab, uh, with the World Economic Forum in general, uh, what I see there is the emergence of transhumanism as an accepted ideology. So, you know, transhumanism was a discussion that was mostly had in academia or it was had on the sort of psychedelic fringe or it was had in Silicon Valley. But uh, with the publication of the Fourth Industrial Revolution and you know, really a lot of the thinking moving up to that and mm. also, of course, uh, the embrace of Yuval Noah Harari's vision in Homo Deus, um, you know, much longer than Klaus Schwab, you know, Parag Khanna, who was groomed at the World Economic Forum and has openly advocated for technocracy, uh, his book, what is it, uh, Technocracy in America, uh, but also his current book, Move, also his book, Hybrid Realities. Uh, you know, he has, you know, using that, that, that sort of uh, uh, ideological hub he has been injecting these transhumanist ideas into that sphere for, you know, the better part of a decade. And so what you have there, you have this, this, this gathering of billionaires, uh, many of them coming from the tech sector, uh, who, to whatever degree they adopted or not, are at least paying, uh, they, they, are, they are assenting to the declaration that this fourth industrial revolution will mean a total transformation of human beings, that fusion of the biological the digital and the physical worlds. So the direct power of the World Economic Forum, I think, is very questionable, but undoubtedly their influence is huge. And I also think that the fact that these ideas are being not just described, uh, you know, they of course they talk about there's going to be these problems, but they're ultimately celebrated by Schwab, by Prague Khanna, uh, by Kai-Fu Lee, another World Economic Forum favorite, uh, you know, really, Yuval Noah Harari is probably the only one that I've read there that has a, a truly dark vision of where it could go. But I mean, as many have noted, he has a sort of impish, monstrous sort of personality. You know, his, his views on religion are malevolent, to say the least. So there's many things not to like about him, but he was like the only dissenting voice. You see that this open embrace of this idea that technology can ultimately overcome human limitation will ultimately overcome human limitation and th that general view that sociologically psychologically and ultimately spiritually the entirety of the planet is going to be altered by these technological developments and they have to be embraced and they have to be controlled now on the other side of that you've got elon musk now and elon musk has always had a, a, a huge fan base among libertarians he now has a huge fan base among uh, traditional conservatives because of his promise to, to, to open up Twitter as a, a free speech platform. 
But uh, really, long before uh, you know Schwab became public enemy number one, Elon Musk was pushing these ideas, these transhumanist ideas, into the popular culture. And you just go on and on. Everything from the idea of a super intelligent artificial intel- uh, 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 AI system to uh, the idea that one can link one's mind to it through a brain-computer interface, in his case, direct uh, implanted linkage with Neuralink, uh, the idea that all of labor will and probably should be replaced by automation and robots, uh, the idea that robots can be viable companions for human beings, uh, the idea that we all live in a simulation, right? That, that, that instead of having God at the center or a you know divine creator at the center, it's just a, a sort of mathematically justified speculation that we're actually in a computer program. And the idea that uh, you know we will inevitably create virtual environments that are indistinguish- indistinguishable from physical reality, and therefore the virtual is in many senses real as the actual. All of these ideas have been pushed by Elon Musk's in, in his interviews, in his uh, tweets, and you know various documentaries about him, uh, all these ideas have been slowly but surely pushed out, and they do form a coherent whole, and they in, are entirely reflective of the core sort of aims of transhumanists. You know, to the extent that you can generalize, all of those fall into very common transhumanist tropes. So, you know. Why is it that you have all of these lefty politicians who pay obeisance to Klaus Schwab? Um, you know, why is it that you now have all of these, like basically the entire conservative establishment, uh, lining up to, you know, throw palm fronds in the path of Elon Musk and his quest to free speech? Um, I don't, you know, a conspiratorial mind would say, oh, well, that's just, you know, the New World Order playing both sides. I don't think so, though. I see it more as just this is how influential these ideas have become right under our noses without anyone really becoming aware that extremely powerful and influential people from an ideological hub like the World Economic Forum uh, to the tech sectors in uh, Shenzhen, Beijing, Shanghai, uh, you know, Huawei, Baidu, Tencent, Alibaba, all of them have a sort of I don't know how many of them read transhumanist intellectuals, but the value system that's described in transhumanism has been adopted by and large by the, the, the upper crust, the elites in the Chinese Communist Party and the corporations that are under their control. Mm. You also have Silicon Valley, in which, you know, just the declaration of the metaverse by Mark Zuckerberg, this very old idea that had been bandied about by transhumanists and had been well articulated in that sphere is now you know just a, a public commodity that people will be able to buy. They're opening a new retail retail store. You can walk in and buy your own transhumanist device to stick on your head. The danger in all of this, I think, is just simply a matter of influence. It's a matter of slow creep. So that the value system of the culture is being slowly but more and more rapidly as the years go on shifted and reoriented towards these technologically mediated goods. And uh, the more people turn away from that and back towards the ancient and and at the very least, you know, what we'd cultivated up to this point and maintain those sorts of sweet spots, the better off we'll be. We hear people like Elon Musk and Harari and even Schwab uh, constantly making these kinds of comments about where the future is going to go. 
Um, do we sometimes confuse ourselves with what they see and perhaps what they want? Certainly. I mean, well, in, in politics, you're never going to get a straight answer, right? Mm. Uh, in, in entertainment, it's the same. And in corporate advertising, it's the same. So in, coming from any of those megaphones, it's necessary to read between the lines. At the same time, uh, the tendency to see something between those lines for which there's no evidence is also a danger, right? Klaus Schwab is going to round up 90% of the population and kill us all, right? Like, if I'm not the first person to say that, right? I hear this sort of thing all the time. Um, I see no evidence of that, you know? I mean, what I see is a guy who holds basically kind of uh, shit-tier liberal views, and, uh, you know, they've been amped up to the extreme, and, you know, he sees himself as, you know, a kind of a, a, a sort of representative of oligarchs in many ways, I think. And, and also, because of his intelligence and because of his influence over the World Economic Forum, he, he does hold sway to some extent over the culture of the oligarchs, though not nearly as much probably as people give him credit for. So, you know, what sits behind Klaus Schwab is you know, there are a number of motivations that you or I can only guess at. There are a number of individuals who we could uh, identify, Mark Benioff and uh, Jeff Bezos, people like that, who I think ultimately stand far above him, both in their, their personal wealth, their power, their influence over the culture. But that relationship is still important. So when Klaus Schwab says, you know, it's pretty much inevitable that human beings are going to be chipped, this is something the majority of the population would recoil at and should recoil at. Uh, and yet uh, his benefactors and his uh, colleagues don't seem to have any problem with. So, you know, the, the question of whether or not we should buy into their worldview, I think, um, a, as an ideal, I think it should be rejected outright. That's my opinion. That's my stance. Uh, as a possibility, I think we should be very skeptical. I think the possibility of a smart city is something we should be very, very skeptical of, whether or not they'll actually be able to coordinate all these systems effectively so that it actually is you know, a, a viable competitor with you know, old-fashioned cities, right? Um, we should be very skeptical of their claims to the powers that they hope to achieve, right? But you should also take it very seriously. And I think that the advances in artificial intelligence over the last five to ten years, and really in the last two, have shown us that what was considered to be, you know, uh, you know, a showroom promise as far as artificial intelligence actually being able to gather mass amounts of data and pull out original uh, uh, analyses from that data, right? That to actually be able to abstract meaningful information that human beings would not have arrived at, that was really a pipe dream 10 years ago, and it's a reality now, and it's advancing quickly. So you we mean, should also... Yeah. Sorry, go on. No, go on. But I think... I think that uh, you should reject the ideal out of hand. Mm. I think that you should be very skeptical of the claim, but you should also take it very seriously. And if no other reason, you should take it very, very seriously, because even if it's implemented half-assed, it's still going to become a dominant force in your culture. Amazon is not everything it's cracked up to be, right? It's pretty convenient for a lot of people. Certainly no miracle. But uh, you know, despite all of its down downsides, Amazon is one of the most, if not the most dominant retailer on the planet. So even though it doesn't live up to the ideal that it's, that, you know, is proposed, it at least lives up to the ideal of being effective enough to become the dominant retailer on the planet. Mm. It's very, very important. What are some of those markers 
of sort of transhumanist steps along the way. Uh, you've mentioned smartphones extensively, so I'm guessing that's one of the, the markers. Would digital ID be the next marker? Absolutely, but in, in a different way. So transhumanists do talk about digital identification, especially in terms of uh, smart cities. But it's it's more that falls more into line with just financial interests and technocratic interests. Um, I I I don't think that transhumanism should be confused with technocracy as a concept. Transhumanism represents this very distant goal. It was really, you know, a whole galaxy of distant goals that in which humanity is fundamentally transformed, fundamentally altered by technology. Whereas technocracy, it's just simply this this philosophy that energy and all interaction, all states, right, all human actors and all you know states or qualities of the entities in a society can be tracked, can be monitored. Uh, can be properly organized and regulated, and so that using technology you can basically create an approximation of utopia. Digital identity falls into that sort of category, because with a digital identity, just as they've been able to do with credit card transactions, just as they've been able to do with the tracking of movements on smartphones, uh, just as they've been able to do with the tracking of mental states through search engines and social media, you basically have just centralized that and given made a, a sort of in the case of a mandatory digital identity, right? You've made a mandatory uh, conglomerate of all those different surveillance uh, apparatuses that you can you can look at a person now. It's a social credit score, right? It, it, you can now look at a person and you can evaluate them and evaluate their society, um, evaluate their value to the society or to your corporation or to your government. Uh, so it, it fits in in the sense that, yes, it, it's using technology to try to achieve some better or you know, more perfect state of human life. But in the end, I mean, it, it doesn't really take a, you know, a fucking Luddite to realize that everyone having a mandatory digital identity in which all of these different aspects of your personality are, are gathered together mm. and used ultimately to, you know, uh, basically herd you through whatever sort of gateway society is going to open for you, uh, rather than just allowing, you know, more natural, more organic sort of processes to unfold. Uh, I, it, you don't have to be a fucking Luddite to say that that's hell on earth. Mm. In front of you, there's a crystal ball. Absolutely. And, and it's right around the corner. I mean, it's already here, right? There are all these different de facto social credit scores that are being used now. Mm. Uh, but the, it's a big danger, the idea that it will be made explicit. And, uh, you know, the vaccine passports, I think, were in some ways a beta test of that. Um, and you have these more extreme examples that are constantly being trickled out in the media. The BBC just reported on um, uh, Walletmore, the company that's, you know, providing uh, RFID implants that basically, you know, ha assume the role of a digital identity that's implanted in you. Now, all that's voluntary and only, you know, real techno fetishists are ever going to submit to something like that. But what you do see in that is, you know, you can always look at that guy with the chip in his hand and say, well, at least that's not me. While at the same time, every interaction in your life relies on the presentation of your smartphone or a QR code or some other form of digital identity. So it's in essence, no different. I mean, you, you don't have to peel it out of your hand to get rid of it. You can just throw it away. But to the extent your social system is determined by those gateways, those digital mm. gateways, and your access to the goods of society 
are you know now determined by a mandatory digital identity, it's not really that different from having a chip in your hand. In the same way as brain-computer interfaces that don't require a chip in your head, uh, you know, it, it, it's not that different, right? Like right now, they're in development. Facebook is is working on it. Uh, a number of universities are working on it. Um, the, the the guy Brian Johnson, the uh, the the uh, I think it was called BrainTree Payments or something like that. He's he is now working on uh, uh, Kernel Flex and Kernel Flow. They're already on the market. These these non-invasive brain computer interfaces that they hope eventually will start to work in tandem with virtual reality so that your brain is basically being monitored for different moods, different cognitive states, different sort of states of heightened awareness, states of lower awareness or arousal. And so that the, the virtual world itself responds to your brain, right? You don't have to have a chip in your head for your brain to be scanned and for that to become a, a cultural norm. And so, you know, it's really, there there isn't any one place that I would point to say, what are the markers of transhumanism? Because any any direction you look, in any sector of society, you see this creep, this idea that the digital or the virtual or that the technological can and should mediate human life and human existence everywhere. Schools we already mentioned in the educational system, e-learning and everything that goes along with that. In churches, you had Mark Zuckerberg and the, the Facebook CEO, Sheryl Sandberg, openly talking about how virtual and augmented reality should be worked into or could be, and it would be great if these, these technologies were, were integrated into church services or synagogue services or mosque services, right? And that's already happening, and that's all right around the corner. And then if you look in the business place, it's just sa it's saturated. I mean, you basically operate on the basis of a digital ID. A lot of people have software on their, their work-from-home computers that are still monitoring them and their behavior, their keystrokes, sometimes the video feeds. Uh, you have work environments in factories. I mean, McDonald's is basically a surveillance state at this point at the lowest level. But if you're working at Google, though I know very little, I've only known a couple people to work at Google, and they're, they're, they've told me a bit, they're still fairly tight-lipped. But you have the same sort of kind of technocratic regime in Google times a thousand with a lot bigger stakes than McDonald's. But it extends from there to there, right? So you already see this movement towards a totally digitized society in some of the most important sectors of the society. So uh, a lot of those markers are already being made. A lot of it really is a matter of there's, there's two elements that I see that are most at, at play. Uh, public resistance, which is far lower than I would prefer and, and not necessarily because people don't uh in some sense revolt against the ideas but just because people who are comfortable tend to you know remain uh you know in stasis so, you know there's a lot of inertia uh in just kind of going along with the herd but uh, you know beyond that you know the technical feasibility of any of these is another big issue right will the public accept it's one thing will they be able to do it is another is Neuralink even feasible? And I think that's really an open question. You're drilling holes what do you, in people's heads. and What do you think? I mean, there's really no way to know. Uh, you know, like the Neuralink, Neuralink as it exists now, if, if it killed 15 out of 23 monkeys at the University of California, Davis, uh, then more than likely in its current form, it ain't going to cut it. Uh, mm. But I, I think that it's quite possible that over the course of another 5, 10 years, especially as more experimentation on humans uh, has been conducted, 
that you will have something. I mean, you already have brain-computer interfaces that allow people to text and type and surf the Internet with nothing but their brains. I mean, that's been really, I think, the first brain-computer interface that accomplished that was somewhere around 2008, 2009. It may have even been earlier than that. But, like, in the last year, you've seen two really major examples and a third that was touted. It was not that big of a deal. But you had the, 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 the gentleman who uh, had been paralyzed from a stroke. Uh, the experiment was done at University of California, uh, San Francisco, and basically was able to write, just simply thinking words, write words out on the screen using nothing but a brain-computer interface. And that's just, you know, an electrode array laying on top of his skull. That's not 1,024 hair-thin wires that the Neuralink uh, device would have. But that so doesn't sound so bad. A, huh? I mean, in some instances, that sounds like a good thing for of that course. person. I, I, you know, my, my, best mo my best friend's mother died... Mm. Um, but she was in a, she was in a coma for about, uh, almost 10 years and, you know, he would have done anything I would have done, you know, I, there's no way anyone could ever oppose something like that. Right. Mm -hmm. Like if someone is, is horrifically injured, uh, either through a medical, uh, emergency or an accident, there's no reason, morally speaking, to deny them that. And that's kind of the slippery slope that we're on, right? Like th there's no reason to deny someone uh, the you know if, if someone is 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 homebound, then how could you really complain about them sitting around on you know watching television all day, or with a virtual reality helmet on their on their head all day? You can't really. So uh, these technologies are, are in many ways being developed on the backs on the on, on the back of human weakness or you know a, a kind of human uh, tendency to indulge one or the other, right? But is it? Is it human weakness? I mean, let's just say that you come from a family line that is prone to cancer, and you're able to you're able to stop that. Right. I mean, through through for instance, through CRISPR technology, right? Like you you mm. actually alter the the genome yeah. of the of your child. Yeah. And now they have less risk of cancer. Why it's, would you oppose that? Question. Yeah. Why would you oppose that? I mean, I personally wouldn't. Uh, in, in fact, I, 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 what I oppose is the long-term goal. Mm. To the extent that any of these technologies uh, are, submit themselves to or are reined in and held in control by a greater vision that does not hold the technology itself up to be the highest power, there's always the possibility of that technology being integrated in a healthy fashion. That's not the trajectory we're on now. The, te the, trajectory, the trajectory that we are presently on is one of total fetishization. And that's the predominant trajectory. So uh, to the extent that that counterforce can be cultivated, to the extent that that counterforce can actually overcome that idea or that sort of cultural orientation, then there's really little to object to. But I also don't believe that these technologies are neutral. So that if you have uh, virtual reality as the norm in your church service, it is not the same as singing out of a hymnal. It's not the same as walking up and taking the Eucharist. It's not the same as mm -hmm. contemplating an icon and the sort of unconscious and subconscious forces and spiritual forces that channel through a person who is contemplating the icon it becomes something very different when that icon comes alive and speaks to you, or if that icon is robotic already, 
or whatever sorts of technological mediations go on top of it. So I don't think that these technologies are neutral. Nuclear weapons are not neutral, right? Like cars are not neutral. None of it's neutral. You can use it in all these different ways. But to its very existence alters the landscape either of the, the actual planet in the case of cars uh, or of the, the social structure, the, the social fabric and, and, and the mental makeup of the people in that society. These technologies have direct and predictable impacts and you can steer them one way or the other, but their very presence changes things. So I'm, yeah. I'm no dictator. If I, if I were the dictator, I would just simply run with my band of tribesmen, I suppose, out into the forest and we would, you know, take what tools we could and do our best. Uh, fortunately, I don't have that luxury, and so I won't probably do anything that foolish and end up, you know, dead at the, uh, you know, the, the foot of a bear. But um, <laughs> I, I, so, you know, there is, but I, I think that, that for me anyway, the importance isn't to dictate some sort of proper course of action yeah. for the whole of society. But what I would like is for more people to be aware of how rapidly these changes are occurring and how much is at stake should any of these changes become permanent. And I encourage people from whatever perspective they come from, whether it be religious or purely naturalistic, uh, and, and in the religious sphere, whatever sort of religious tradition that they adhere to, I just simply encourage them to think about the ways in which these technologies are going to impact their value systems. Because the more advanced any technology is, the more direct impact it's going to have on your value system. In the case of medical care, if you've ever watched someone who has kept alive for many years too long by way of medical miracles, you can see the ways in which the, the delusion that technology is the cure-all for human mm -hmm. ailments it, it is, in fact, delusional, whereupon just simply submitting to the natural process of death would have been far more graceful, far less painful. And so I, I think that that sort of choice is, 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 is in front of us in many different directions. And there are plenty of people cheerleading for technology. So, you know, people say I'm contrary. I completely disagree. But um, I, I am basically trying as best I can to cultivate a counter current against that and again i'm not alone there are many many others who are doing this mm. so i think that there's a good chance of success of building up those cultural bar cultural barriers against these supposedly inevitable futures that are being held out in front of us my wife made an interesting comment the other day we were chatting about something similar and um, she was saying you know imagine you are born a paraplegic and there really is no hope for you in terms of mobility Something like the metaverse is really a, a magical alternative because in a virtual world, you can walk and you can run and you can do all those things that you just cannot do currently in your wheelchair. There's, something, there's something about that that, that that makes the hair in my arm stand up. But I don't know. But I don't know if it's a good thing. That's, this is where I'm conflicted. Well, I mean, uh, if, if someone's in chronic pain, you can justify giving them opioids until the, their last breath, right? In, in any given scenario, a certain technology might have its purpose, it might have its role. Um, I, it's something that it, 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 you can't get around, right? You, mm -hmm. You've just mentioned three classical examples, four, I think, right? You have the case of someone who has a predisposition to cancer, or maybe some even more exotic and horrific genetic disease. 
do you deny them the uh, the joy of childbirth from their own seed, or do you alter that seed as you see fit to make healthier offspring? That's uh, not a decision I'm willing to make for someone else. I, I know what I, I know what decision I would make for myself, uh, which is would be to forego it and chance it. But um, that's that's my decision, and I tend to be a, a kind of a, I'm not a very risk averse person, so you know you don't don't listen to me on everything. In the case of um, you know the the person who is disabled, and you know really the only world they have to live in is the metaverse. You could say that someone sitting around reading romance novels all day is not doing anything much different. And there is definitely a point to that. But there's a big difference, I think, between, you know, using metaverse technologies to console or comfort people who are paralyzed or, you know, are homebound uh, and having VR headsets on every desk in every classroom mm. and, you know, moving work culture, work environment over into the into the virtual and, and all basically fundamentally altering work in general by the introduction of automation, like these sorts of things certainly have their uses. No, we, they wouldn't have invented them and they wouldn't sell if they didn't have a use. But in, in the case of automobiles, I think it's pretty obvious that, uh, you know, if you've been in L.A., you know that automobiles aren't making the world a better place in many ways. Um, if you live in uh Eastern Europe right now, uh, or even Western Europe, you probably aren't too thrilled about the invention of the atomic bomb, right? Um, it saved many lives, you could argue, it's certainly since the end of World War II. Uh, but if they start going off, then you didn't, then, then what, right? Or something more banal, like um, the, uh, the, the idea of like a paralyzed person, well, it's not exactly banal, something smaller scale, paralyzed person with a brain chip that allows a locked-in person to communicate. Uh, it's a miracle of technology that is certainly helping that person tremendously. So if Elon Musk was only talking about that, that would be one thing. Peter Thiel has invested in uh, uh, BlackRock Neurotech. I've yet to hear him anyway talk about, you know, hooking people up for the purpose of, uh, you know, keeping pace with artificial intelligence. It's really difficult to argue against that, but in the same way that the atomic bomb was created in a desperate sort of moment in which you could argue that the, the, the power structure of the world could have been irrevocably shifted towards the Nazis or you know, some sort of Japanese sun god empire um, were it not for the atomic bomb or that war would have been a constant state after World War II without the atomic bomb, maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, has it really made the world a better place? Are we really, like... Do we have better human beings coming out of a society in which, you know, hand-to-hand -hand conflict is basically, uh, you know, or, or even just, you know, uh, you know, rifles and, uh, and, and, and tanks? I mean, like, there, there's, there's no bravery in setting off a nuke, right? And I think that there is a, you know, uh, Mary Harrington made this argument, and I think she's right, that a lot of the uh, kind of demasculinization in the West and in developed nations is directly attributable uh, to the you know Pax Americana and the, the you know mutually assured destruction and the the threat of nuclear war has basically left people in a sort of sedentary state that has, has you know allowed many people anyway uh, to become complacent. Um, I, I think there's a good argument for that. And I, so I, the long-term, larger-scale effects are what really should be focused on. Um, we know what the benefits are, right? If if, if a kid, like the guy who lost his legs in the mountaineering. Accident. I wish I could remember his name off the top of my head. There's a great uh, 
documentary that involves him with DW. But he has created some of the most advanced prosthetics that uh, exist in the world, right? The, the, he's able to sense using the prosthetics, using you know a, an input from the prosthetics, which gives him the ability. He can rock climb, you know, he can run, he can do all these things. No legs, no legs since the mid '90s. Now he can run. Now he can walk, right? Jeez. So it's it's absolutely astounding. It's impossible for me to put down him for creating that and it's impossible for me really to uh, you know say that the development of something like that is a net negative but there is a comment that he made that really stuck with me and it was it was this parting comment in this DW documentary and it was that as his body is deteriorating as his body is getting older his legs the technology in his legs is getting better that what he's doing is he's watching one part of himself, which he considers to be completely part of himself, improve over time while he himself is deteriorating. And that sits at the center of the transhumanist philosophy. Human beings are inherently frail in a way that machines are not. And therefore, the machines will naturally come to replace us. Machines will naturally be our heirs because of their, their resilience, uh, because of their, in, in many ways, invincibility in the face mm -hmm. of certain conflicts and, and ultimately because of the, in their belief system, the ability that, of machines to become far more complex, uh, far more, you know, cognitive, cognitively proficient and, and, and more able to exert physical power over the environment. Now, again, like it's a, it's a long-term, um, this is spring again, the Beatles have come back. We got a window open. Um, uh, it, it's uh, like the long-term idea of machines taking over. That's not the sort of thing I imagine we're going to see in our lifetimes. Uh, Ray Kurzweil predicts 2045 as being the date of the singularity. Let's just say that it were to occur. You would already notice some pretty big differences in the society around you by that time, should we be on the cusp of such a thing. But it's not like the singularity would occur and just envelop the world instantaneous, in, instantaneously, although some might foresee it that way. But what you would see is much like now, where you have certain centers of power and certain centers of innovation in which these innovations erupt bit by bit across the planet. And I, I do think that something like a singularity is occurring before, before our eyes now. What we're seeing is rapid advances in artificial intelligence and rapid deployment. We're seeing you know, rapid advances in virtual reality, and in, in particular, its commercial viability and its deployment. Um, we don't see, nobody is genetically altering babies in a legal fashion that we know of to create super babies, or even you know, outside, there are a few gene therapies that are being used, but they're not being used in a, a, in a eugenic fashion. Um, but I do think that as we go forward, the chances of that are pretty good and what you do have now is selective abortion, right? So-called liberal eugenics. And that is having a tremendous impact on the genotypic constitution of populations all over the world. The classic example in Iceland versus Ireland, there are way more kids with Down syndrome in Ireland than Iceland. Iceland has basically no children with Down syndrome. And the reason is, is that you know, prenatal screening allows for the detection of the disorder and selective abortion allows for the choice to terminate the child. Whereas in primarily Catholic Ireland, uh, it's just either not employed or it's, cho it's, it's not chosen. So 
even though Down syndrome children don't reproduce, uh, you still see like the society itself is is being fundamentally altered in some way by these technologies. So I, I do think that the acceleration of those technologies' development is well underway. It will continue, and it will continue to be very disorienting. It's one of the reasons I think it's important for people at least to understand the very basics of the technologies that directly confront them now. Artificial intelligence used to determine your financial status. Artificial mm -hmm. intelligence used to determine your mate. These sorts of things are very critical, and they should be thought through very carefully before being used. Let's come in. Let's come in for landing. Um, <clears throat> something that that I that I often think about, and I see it coming up in the comments uh, now during this conversation as well. You know, uh, people playing God, trying to replace God. Yes, a a question for you. Can God actually then be replaced? It's a good question. Um, I, I don't think so in any uh, permanent or uh, ultimate sense, no. I, I don't think so. I think in the same ways that the idolatries of the Egyptians, the Romans, uh, in many ways the idolatries of at the height of Christendom, uh, I, I think that those idolatries tend to fall away simply because they are in fact idols. And what is ultimate is, in fact, beyond all of that. And what is ultimate will always continue to break through. And so the present idolatry, probably not. Now, uh, you know, ask a, an Egyptian slave or a Roman slave uh, or, you know, a medieval serf what they think about the power of that, that idol. They would probably have some pretty strong opinions. Even if they didn't believe that idol existed, they would at least have to acknowledge the power of that idol. So uh, God will continue to do what God does. I, I don't speak for God, mm. but and I, I, if God exists, which I believe wholeheartedly God exists, that power is untouchable by us. Our control really lies in our response to that power and the degree to which we as people or societies and communities uh, adhere to that force, that unseen, largely unseen force. So does transhumanism pose a threat to God? No, of course not, nor does any idolatrous tradition. Mm -hmm. But transhumanism, just like you know, the, 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 the pharaonic cult in Egypt or you know, the, the, the Caesar cult in Rome, formed, you know, it's a real threat to those who are outside of its power structure. I think that the fetishization of technology and the abuse of power made possible by technology is a very real threat. It has to be, it will be, It will be something that hangs over us our entire lives, absent an EMP mm. or some sort of nuclear confrontation that destroys these technologies. Because any one of these these sort yeah. of heads of the Hydra, get rid of any of them. You know, blow up Facebook tomorrow, right? Uh, you know, wipe the World Economic Forum off the face of the earth. All of these different institutions and governments and corporations are developing these technologies with very similar value systems. So this is not something that's going to go away, and it's not something that you can fight by, by creating a scapegoat, even Elon Musk, even as tempting as it is. Where can people follow you? You can always find me on The War Room. Um, uh, it, it, you know, it varies. Right now, I'm, uh, I'm stepping back. I'm working on a project, uh, but I'm on The War Room quite frequently with Steve Bannon, Also, my website, jobot.xyz. Uh, any articles I publish outside of that, I oftentimes publish at The Federalist. Uh, there'll be some stuff coming up in Chronicles. 
Salvo Magazine. Uh, you can find it there as well, but you can all find it at JoeBot.xyz. And as long as I have to keep posting on it, uh, I will be plugged into the Cyborg social media, Twitter and Gitter, at J-O-E-B-O-T-X-Y-Z. So until I have my, my army of scribes uh, writing on clay tablets and sending out my writing, uh, you'll probably be able to find me there. Joe Allen, thank you for joining me in the trenches. Hi, Germ. Thank you very much. Don't go anywhere. My name is Germ. This is Germ Warfare, the battle of ideas. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit supportgerm.com.